No Gray Zone podcast is a frank and honest conversation on topics related to sexual abuse, harassment, child exploitation, and domestic and workplace violence. The opinions are our own, based on years of experience as special victims prosecutors. Any study, book, or product we mention is based on our own review and are not sponsored. Links and titles can be found in the podcast notes. You can also learn more at rightresponseconsulting.com. Listener discretion is advised. I'm just good at caring too much. I'm just good at caring too much. Is it too much to ask that you be all mine? I never was good at sharing. I'm just good at caring. Welcome back. I'm Katherine Marsh. And I'm Melissa Hotmeyer, and this is No Gray Zone Podcast. Today we're ending our series on exploitation and human trafficking, and we have a special guest, Nikki Holmes, a human trafficking attorney, and she's going to answer some questions about human trafficking investigations. We are thrilled to have Nikki. Welcome. Thank you so much for doing this. Uh, Nikki has great experience prosecuting human trafficking cases. She is involved from the beginning of the investigations with law enforcement all the way through the prosecution. Nikki also provides training across the state on trafficking cases and sits on several human trafficking task force. So with that introduction, let's just jump right in. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. So Nikki, tell us what, in your opinion, is the biggest misconception around prosecuting human trafficking cases? I think from what I've learned that the biggest misconception is really what people think human trafficking is and how they define it and what their image of it is. Uh, What I mean by that is that people think human trafficking is really, they think it's like what they see in the movies, that victims are handcuffed and they're being smuggled. They're coming from outside the United States and they're being smuggled inside the United States and they're being brought here for the purpose of being commercial sex workers. But what I tell people is that human trafficking really is so much more than that. And none of our cases really actually look like that. Human trafficking happens everywhere. I say to people a lot, you know, at any given time, you could go on your cell phone or go on your computer and you could go online. And within minutes, you could probably find a place or an advertisement for for commercial sex work or for prostitution within miles of where you are at that time. And so it really does occur everywhere in our society. And I think that is the biggest misconception. Yeah, you know, we talked a little bit about that last week. And and we were talking about how there are over 100,000 escort ads posted in the United States every day, and how that problem and those, those ads are just growing. So given that we as prosecutors know that the media portrays trafficking in a way that, you know, doesn't really comport with what we see. Why do you think that that misconception still exists? I think the misconception, like a lot of things, exists because of how it is portrayed in the news and in the media. As with many crimes that we deal with and I know you deal with, the day-to-day stuff is really not what's being reported in the news. The news will focus on the huge human trafficking cases with like 30 victims or cases that involve celebrities like the Jeffrey Epstein case or when Robert Kraft was charged for being in a massage parlor. And so the, the news and the media really focuses on that. So people think that it's these isolated incidents. 
And also, I think people don't want to believe that it goes on as regularly as it really does. You know, what I'm here to tell you and what I hope you gain from this is is an understanding that it's happening. It happens on a daily basis and it's happening, I assure you, in your neighborhoods. And, and that's really what we try to stress to our listeners through the podcast is don't think it's not happening in your community or that it couldn't happen to your own kids. Have the tough conversations now. Know the signs now. That way we can prevent it in the future. A question that comes up a lot with regard to trafficking cases is how difficult is it to get the cooperation from the survivors of the trafficking? That's a good question because it is very difficult. In general, the criminal justice process takes a long time, and I think that's especially true in human trafficking cases. These cases, as opposed to maybe some of the other ones that you've discussed in your podcast, are, are generally longer term investigations, and they can take years to finally come to court. And so, you know, it's understandable that a survivor might not want to come to court two or three years later to testify in front of a jury who's, you know, 12 completely random strangers with their trafficker in the same room. And, and to me, that really is the biggest hurdle to an effective prosecution. On top of that delay, which is really long in a lot of these trafficking cases, survivors often feel a sense of loyalty to their traffickers. And this is due to the trauma bonding or gaslighting. And so if a trafficker is, is not in jail, which a lot of times they aren't while these cases are pending or while the investigations are coming to a conclusion, the traffickers will often find a way to get into, back into contact with these survivors. And by getting back in contact with them, a lot of times they prevent them from testifying at trials. Yeah, we actually talked a lot about trauma bonds last week because we also, you know, we talked about how traffickers are really master manipulators and who will use the trauma bond that they form purposefully with the victims to help avoid prosecution. And so, you know, what do you think helps survivors engage more in the process? And what can we do as prosecutors to make sure that the survivor stays, stays engaged and wants to participate? You know, it, it really is, like I said before, it's, very, it's really a tough part, but I think the best thing we can do as prosecutors and what we try to do in, in, in my office where I work in our office is to establish relations with relationships with victim service providers. So as prosecutors, we like to say that, you know, we're the experts or closer to ex being experts in the law and the prosecution. And victim service providers... They're the experts in what it takes to help a victim move from being a victim to being a survivor. And so immediately connecting these individuals with a victim service provider is essential. Once that's been done, uh, once, that, once that relationship has been established, I generally will just communicate with the advocate from that victim services organization. And to me, they'll serve as sort of a liaison between the survivor and myself. That's really imperative. I don't think often enough the emphasis is put on how critical victim services are, especially when dealing with trafficking. They can help with housing assistance, food assistance, uh, job training, getting a steady income. If they need to learn English as another language, healthcare, mental health care, assist uh, families who have children in foster care, a whole wealth of services uh, that as prosecutors we can't do. But victim services can, and there are so many who provide services for trafficking survivors, and we'll put links to some of those organizations in the notes. I agree with you, Nikki. We could not do our jobs without our victim services providers, our partners in the community that help us 
um, help our survivors get to a place where, you know, they can move past the trauma. And so we've talked about the misconceptions, but can you describe for the audience what goes into a typical investigation into human trafficking? Or, I mean, is there even a typical investigation into human trafficking? I, I don't think there's always a typical investigation, but I generally can separate it. And I say generally, there's always exception, right? And into three main categories that we, we look at in our office. One are cases that involve massage parlor investigations. The second one is uh, investigations into brothels. And the third is uh, hotel operation type investigations. And like I said, there are, of course, cases that don't fit into one of those, but I would say that those are the three big categories for what we see. And so for the massage parlors and the brothels, the investigations, I think, generally come from a tip or a complaint, a lot of times from members of our community, hopefully more will come from your podcast series, or by the officers who have knowledge of a specific location who might have been conducting surveillance at a known hotspot. And so once these officers identify a target location, they'll spend some time observing the daily activity. They'll conduct surveillance. They'll see who's going, who's coming, how long are they staying for, and that'll sort of, you know, might pique their interest in a bigger investigation. These officers sometimes potentially conduct some undercover operations, or they might speak to Johns who are leaving the location. Once the officers from these um, have gathered enough information about these massage parlors or these brothels, they'll generally get a search warrant. A search warrant will be drafted and executed. Once the search, war search warrant is executed, sometimes the cases end at that point. Sometimes they'll, they'll make arrests or they'll make recoveries, and that will be the conclusion of their work at that location. But sometimes what we do is we take the information that we can gain from them, and that might lead to a larger investigation. Hotel operations are a little bit different, and they are extremely prevalent in the communities. And these are generally more single instances of an officer who might find an advertisement online, or maybe they'll see a, a, they'll try to locate a missing child. Um, they'll see them on an advertisement, or they might know that, that that child might be at this location. And so operating in an undercover capacity, these officers will set up a date with a commercial sex worker. And so once that date is set up, at that point, there will oftentimes be a recovery of a, um, of a survivor from that location. In all of the cases, in the massage parlors, the hotels, and the brothels, there are some typical or standard pieces of evidence that we use. And those can include um, cell phones, which we know contain a ton of information, surveillance videos, room receipts, lease information, and they also generally recover a lot of physical evidence, such as condoms or lubricant. So, Nikki, I know you talked a bit about how prevalent these cases are and that, you, I mean, you can have the three main categories and there are always exceptions to them. One thing that connects them all are the survivors. These cases are all heartbreaking and unique, but can you talk to us about one or two cases that have stuck with you and why? these cases stuck with you? Absolutely. So one that really stuck with has stuck with me and, and still does is a case that was actually prosecuted on both the state and the federal level. On the federal side, the defendant was charged and he ultimately pled guilty to a charge called transporting an individual across state lines for the purposes of engaging in prostitution. And I know that's a mouthful but in, it's crossing lines um, really with a, with a victim for um, prostitution. 
And so that was on the federal side. On the state side, the same defendant related to the same time period pled guilty to child abuse charges. And those child abuse charges related to an 18-month-old baby. This baby was the son of a young woman who the defendant was trafficking. And in order to allow this young woman to continue to make money for this defendant, he would watch. Uh, I say watch in quotes because what you'll hear next is really a horror story of what happened. He would watch the baby. And during this time, this defendant, he really tortured the child. He would physically assault him. He would starve him. He would force him to sleep in a cold bathroom on the floor, all so that this woman could continue to work for him. You know, aside from the obvious reasons of this torture that this child endured, why this case really stuck to me is because this young child has grown and he's now a a young boy. And the long-term effects that this abuse had on him is really difficult for me. Um, And I think about it a lot. And although this, you know, he can't articulate what happened to him because he was so young, he has really significant emotional damage because of this defendant's conduct. And, and that, I think that case, you know, the tying in of child abuse to the trafficking is not something that I see on a regular basis. And so to give you more of, of some cases that I've seen more often, there are two cases that stick out to me and, and they remind me a little bit of each other because they involve two young women and who were victims and now survivors. And these survivors were in really, really tough times in their lives when they became involved in, in when they were trafficked. One was trying to make money for a sick family member, and the other one was in a really hard financial situation. Both of these young women found advertisements online for an opportunity to make money as what they thought would be serving as an escort. They then came into contact with their traffickers after they met them online. And fortunately, in in both of these instances, actually, police officers came into contact with these young women pretty quickly. So their time with the trafficker was limited, which lessens the the hold of the trauma bond that they might feel. These two cases really stand out to me because it just demonstrates how easy it is for a trafficker to take advantage of someone who might be having a hard time. And they also stand out because I'm really happy to report that both of these young women are doing amazing things today. They have wonderful careers and they truly are examples of how when law enforcement and victim services providers were involved in these cases and prosecution comes together, that the there can really be a positive impact. Yeah, I mean, it really just kind of shows that it could really happen to anybody. And I think that that's kind of what you've talked about you know, while you've been here to talk to us and what what Catherine and I have talked about over the last few weeks is that, you know, we can't close our eyes and think that it's not going to happen to us or a family member. And I think that that's what those two stories show. Um, And all three of those stories are just so incredibly tragic. And I know that you and Catherine have worked on legislation as a result of that first one. So I guess the next question that we ask is, you know, and and we know it from our own experiences that it's hard not to take this job home with you. So can you tell us a little bit about what your self-care practices are so that you don't, you know, cry all the time? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I'm not, I'm not a crier, but if I was a crier, I'd cry all the time at this job. Um, I, so I, I used to be a huge crime show junkie. 
like I would come home from my work days and I would watch SVU or the first 48 and I was listen to all the podcasts. And this year for my New Year's resolution, I told myself I, and I just realized I needed to learn to take a break for something from it every once in a while. So my resolution was to try to watch a little bit less of those shows. Um, I still watch it all the time, but a little bit less and a little bit more lighthearted TV. And I'll say it really has had a positive impact on me and it's something I'll continue after this year. I also rely on my coworkers a lot. Um, I have the best coworkers in the whole world and we are super close and they really provide a lot of emotional support for me. I think it's really important to recognize that, you know, one secondary trauma is real and that it's important to take care of your own mental health and however that works for you, especially when dealing with these kinds of cases and the trauma that you see all day long. It's that's so critical. But we have one last question. What can I do as an everyday citizen or a parent of a child to help prevent my child or other children in my community from being victims of trafficking? That is, that's a very good question. Something that we get asked a lot when we do trainings. And I would say the biggest thing is to be aware. You know, when you hear at the airport, like if you see something, say something. That's how I feel about human trafficking cases. Technology has made it really so easy for traffickers to have access, especially to have access to our children. And so as parents, I would say monitor your kids' social media, monitor their phones. And if you see something suspicious, have a conversation with them about it. And if you don't feel comfortable, I know some parents might not, um, then maybe reach out to an expert or reach out to a social worker at the school or an aunt or someone that they might be closer to. And I would just say that at the very least, what I hope about this podcast and this series and what I hope it made you realize is that trafficking really is everywhere. And it's not just in the movies. And so as parents and as citizens, I just ask that we all keep our eyes and our ears open. Thank you, Nikki. Thank you so much for taking the time to be here with us and to share just a little bit of what you see every day. That's all the time we have. If you'd like to learn more on this topic or have a question, you can find us on social media at No Gray Zone RRC on Instagram or Twitter and No Gray Zone on Facebook. And tune in next week when we start our new series that's going to focus on sexual assault investigations and trials. There are no excuses when it comes to sexual assault or not having the right response when it comes to sexual harassment. This has been a No Gray Zone podcast. I'm just good at caring too much.